rock and roll. Okay. The levels look good. Hi, this is JD Graves with Iconoclash Review, your home for quality, cheap thrills. Welcome to episode two of the podcast, and we've got a great show for you today. I have an interview with a tri-state bingo champion. I have a story from a contributor from issue five. And I've got uh, some news updates in the world of indie fiction. So let's get to it. If in case you don't know, Iconoclash Review is an indie pulp rag specializing in modern crime stories, horror stories, sci-fi stories, fantasy stories, bizarro stories, weird stories, and other bric-a-brac for uplifting gourmandizers. Try saying that 15 times fast. All right, let's check in with David Nameth. If you don't know David's work, he is a blogger and crime writer, and his website, theunlawfulacts.net, is one of the most invaluable sources for news and indie fiction going. We have Home Invasion, Roller Derby, and George Jones. Small Crimes Monday Reads features Rob Pierce, Tess Makovsky, Stephen Graham Jones, and more. The uh, article, Incident Report number 87, comes at you with Chris Radigan on writing short stories, Max Booth III on trigger warnings, lots of Dana King, and much more that was on Unlawful Axe. Another article, Roller Derby and Mystery by A.J. Devlin over at do some damage thrillers bring the light by james scott bell that's you can find that at kill zone there's a listicle 25 classic but lesser known crime novels to read in lockdown from king dido to the sam dean series by sarah hughes that's over on inews now we got some book reviews tommy shakes by rob pierce uh, printed by all due respect books can be a review of that can be found at cole's criminal library a book review of rigged by D.P. Lyle, Ocean View Publishing. Uh, can be found over at Lisa's Book Critiques, another book review. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, published by Saga Press, can be read on Malcolm Avenue Reviews. Of course, there's some photography. Big Lonely City, number 101, Fragments of Noor. Music. Drug dealers put up George Jones' reel-to-reel tapes as bail decades ago. Saving country music. A book. Raise the Blade by Tess Murkowski can be found on Amazon. Okay, we got some book reviews. The Letter to Norman Court by Pablo Destere, All Due Respect Books, can be read at Cole's Criminal Library. Love is a Grift by Graham Wynn, Fox Spirit Books, uh, read over at Sonia Kilvington. We Need to Do Something by Max Booth III, published by Perpetual Motion Machine. A review of that could be at Dead End Follies. Dead Man's Mistress by David Housewright. Published by Minotaur. You can read that over at Kevin's Corner. Black Top Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. Flatiron Books. So much to talk about reviews that bad boy, and I cannot wait to get a hold of it. Sorted Five Crime Stories by Henry Hunsucker. Can be re- the review can be read at Kevin's Corner. Broken Dreams by Nick Quantrell. Fahrenheit Press over at Ian Aris. Uh, the Waiting Rooms by Eve Smith, Orienda Books, Crime Fiction Lover. And of course, Rock in a Hard Place Issue 2. Uh, there's a review of it over at 8 million books to read. I'm actually in that, uh, a reprint of one of my stories, uh, Crawdaddy, which first appeared in Switchblade, issue number 3. I did this interview over the weekend with a guy I met in Austin, Texas about a couple of years ago. He would do this bingo night thing where he would announce it. I can't remember the, the bar. I, I think he did it at a couple of bars, but they would have bingo night. And his name is Pocky James McGillicuddy. And uh, he is the alter ego of a, of a friend of mine named Jeremy Jenkins. And Pocky is quite a character. Let's just put it that way. And so without further ado, here is our interview 
with Pocky James, the Tri-State Bingo Champion. You get Pocky. Pocky James is here. Pocky James is the Cuddy, everybody. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Calling you from a payphone. Pocky, when did you? When did? When were you the county bingo champion? Nineteen ninety-three, Tri-State Tri-State ring bingo champion. So, what was the what was the secret to winning bingo on the tri-state area? Being excellent at knowing where to put your dabber when they call numbers. Now, now, Pocky, then- I got a question. I mean, bingo sounds like a fun game, but did you was there ever a temptation? You know, you have all these these uh, high performance athletes, and I would assume that you consider yourself to be a high performance athlete. Oh, of course, of course. Right? Um, did you did you at any point um consider you know trying to game the game in your favor, if you know what I mean. Bingo is a game <laughs> with many stringent rules that should be respected. What I'm asking, what I'm asking is, what was your... <laughs> unless, unless you are deeply in debt or you are worrying for your life at the time. Then I only advocate cheating, but... Well, I'm just saying, were there any, before before a big uh, bingo game, were you staying in an oxygen tent? I mean, were you, were you, what what was your pregame regimen? I mean, did you, did you take the steroids up, uh, you know, I mean, how did you inject yourself to make sure that you had that winning edge? Well, there are a few performance enhancing things you can do for bingo. One, I like to cuddle with my three cats in the back of my Cutlass Supreme before the game. Puts me in the mood, gives me the edge. Two, a seat cushion. A seat cushion gives you a strict advantage over your opponent who have no seat cushion. Three, cocaine. A good amount of cocaine will keep you in the game long enough to see you be a champion. Four, tuna fish salad sandwich. Oh my goodness, Pocky! I mean, that just sounds like that is that sounds like a real endurance uh, regimen. Um, I'm a little concerned about number three. I mean, that would be an illicit substance. Is there not drug testing in the game of bingo? Oh, no. Sometimes I just put that cocaine right on my tuna salad sandwich. Call that a Pocky sandwich. Pocky tuna special. Pocky tuna plus. <laughs> Pocky tuna salad plus. You give me a call. I'll drive my fucking three cats up next time I'm through the county. Kitty litter does not buy itself. But the cat's got to eat too. Pocky loves his cat. So I have a question, uh, Pocky. How many states have you played bingo in? And are oh, there any oh. are there any of them that you cannot return to? I have uh, I have played bingo in many many states. Anger, uh, sorrow, uh, deep remorse. Oh, um, Pocky, I was talking about the United States. Yeah, I'm not allowed in most of them anymore. <laughs> so I've been living in a uh, Walmart parking lot. Hither oh. and thither. I've heard I've heard some really good things about Walmart parking lots and the transient oh, life. The you know, the people. Oh, they don't. They really. If they don't catch you showering in the sink, they don't mind. There's a huge community out there of people who go from Walmart to Walmart, oh. living out of their cars. I mean, and, uh, you know, most most of them love bingo too. Oh, I bet they do. Honestly I bet enough. huge part of the lifestyle. One of the things that people don't know about people who live in Walmart uh, parking lots is that. Applewhite, do you remember the guy Applewhite who started the Heaven's Gate cult? He actually oh, was yeah. a, was a preacher who would go from parking lot to parking lot. Did you ever run into any interesting characters like him? I uh, I owe that guy money. I I hope I don't run into him again. Well, Pocky, you know what? Because I will never. I like the amount of money I bought from that guy. It's pretty obscene. Well, Pocky, yeah. he said he had plenty of it. 
Uh, I would, I would say, I, you know, it's a funny idea. I just, I would steer clear if I was you. Well, Pocky, I hate to break the news to you, but, but he's gone. Who? Who's gone? Applewhite. Applewhite died. Oh yeah, it was all over the news. You didn't know about that. He had, he and his oh. follower. Did you know that he and his followers castrated themselves and then they oh, no. put on brand new Nikes and covered themselves in purple shrouds and then laid on a bed I, uh, to write a comet. I don't get a lot of news in my cutlass supreme, so did this just must have just occurred. Well, surely, so my surely you, you have a radio. Applewhite family, Applewhite family. I feel much remorse. The cat says, choose the cord to the radio. I'm calling you from a payphone. That was some interview, folks. Pocky James McGillicuddy. I have a feeling that he will be coming back to try to talk us into playing bingo and borrowing money. Um, now we move on to the next phase, which is a story by one of our former contributors, uh, Cameron Mount, who was gracious enough to perform his story, Silo, from issue number five, the first Down and Out Books issue. Um, give you a little bit about Cameron. Cameron is a poet, college writing instructor, technology buff, sci-fi fantasy fan, and role-playing gamer. Father, husband, son, brother, geek, soccer fan, amateur card magician, basic balloon twister, and a pretty decent home cook. Lego enthusiast, book hoarder, trivia fan, and amateur movie critic. Heavy metal music advocate, web comic reader, comic book collector, novice ed tech proponent, former Navy officer, three-card money tosser, and sometime spoon bender. Cameron was also one of the uh, half of the editing team that made up the on hiatus broadswords and blasters, a really, really good pulp magazine that came out around the right around the same time as Iconoclash Review. They got 12 issues in and said that they were taking a break. And so they're taking a break. But if you haven't picked up a copy of Broadswords and Blasters yet, please do yourself a favor. There is some really good stuff in there and the editing is very well done. Without further ado, here is Cameron Mount with Silo. My name is Cameron Mount, and this is my story, Silo, first published in Econoclash Review, issue number five. Silo. From the outside, it looked like a large cement basketball court fenced in by razor wire, but it was in fact an operational, if decaying and hopelessly outdated, missile silo. Deep in the bowels of the base, 70 feet down a reinforced concrete shaft, was a 200 square foot command capsule, mostly occupied by ancient computers. Giant paper manuals were stacked in a bookshelf next to the 10-ton door. In the center of the room sat three computer monitors with switches, a faded red rotary phone, and two chairs on tracks. Opposite the consoles was a large steel safe. There were two hasps, each secured with antiquated push-button combination locks. Behind some curtains were two beds and a small toilet, but the only occupant was Lieutenant James Simmons, the lead Saturday duty officer. His deputy called in sick the day before, but Simmons covered for him, fully expecting to have an uneventful watch. And up until now, the watch had been boringly routine. The clock ticked away the end of his 48-hour shift. He leaned forward in his chair and set a large printed manual down next to the phone. The heavy stock of the book was making his arms ache from holding it, but he was careful when he turned the pages. It had been printed in the 1960s and was practically falling apart, but Simmons needed to find the diagram of the door mechanism. 
He was due to be relieved in a little over an hour, but first he had to figure out how to unjam the heavy door protecting the entrance to the command capsule. As annoyed as he felt inside, he couldn't afford to move too quickly with the book for fear of it crumbling away completely. A disintegrated manual wasn't quite as disastrous as being stuck inside a giant bank vault, but it was a huge problem since the books were nearly impossible to find these days. The long minutes wore on Simmons more than he anticipated, and he sighed loudly, just to hear something other than the cold beeps of missiles reporting their statuses to the computer. Aha! Simmons stabbed a finger at the manual. That's where the mechanism stuck. He picked up the red phone and waited for a response on the other end. He didn't get one. The fraying wires on the phone sometimes made it hard to hear people on the other end, but the phones never failed completely. Simmons tapped the switch hook a few times and placed the receiver back to his ear. Nothing. He replaced the handset and waited a few minutes before trying again, but it wasn't working. Simmons pulled over the logbook and made an entry about the phone. It was going to be a top priority as soon as he was back above ground, but until then the door was a bigger concern. He stood and walked over to the bed area, looking for the giant crowbar, which usually ended up in the command capsule. If he could jimmy it under the door's kick plate, he might be able to force the jam tumbler out of the way so the door could swing freely. The crowbar wasn't standing in the corner or lying on the floor of the bunk as it usually did. Simmons shifted his search to the toilet, but it wasn't there either. Shit. He moved back to the phone and picked up the receiver again. He heard a voice on the other end, but as soon as he started to answer, the earpiece cut out. Simmons yelled into the mouthpiece anyway, hoping it was just a bad connection in the handset. Hey Anderson, if you can hear me, tell Hammond to bring down the damn crowbar. The door's jammed. As he hung up, the overhead lights cut out. Simmons waited for the emergency backup lights to come on. They didn't. The only light in the entire capsule was the one flashing red LED indicating the missiles were online, and it was only bright enough to illuminate the launch switches surrounding it. The ambient glow from the light wasn't even enough for Simmons to see his own hands unless he put them uncomfortably close to the switches. He reached out for the chair, pulled it close, and slumped down on the cushioned seat. He fumbled for the phone one more time, but there was no indication it was connecting to the base station. There was nothing else to do now but wait and hope Hammond would come soon. Simmons waited in the silent dark and tried to count the minutes, but kept losing track. He decided he might as well take a nap since he hadn't slept over his two-day shift and groped his way through the dark to the bunk. A knock came on the door, jolting Simmons out of his sleep. Finally, he thought. I'll be right there, Hammond. He blinked again before he realized the lights were back on. Simmons expected a rush of air as the pressure between the capsule and the outside equalized, but there wasn't even a soft breeze. The dead air hung about his shoulders like a stole his ex-girlfriend forgot. Angela had left him a year back for a townie who kept better hours. Then she and the townie died in a car wreck. Junk driving was the official record, but Simmons felt it was a murder-suicide. The Dick Townie had no doubt been distraught when Angela told him she was going back with Simmons, but the cops didn't believe the Air Force officer, not least because no one else could corroborate his story. Hammond? Why is Angela creeping up on my mind now? Angela? The breeze Simmons had expected a few minutes ago suddenly burst through the open doorway, but there was no one to see. James Simmons. 
The voice came from behind him. It turned to see a tall, pale man, pale to the extreme. How did you get in here? James Simmons. I am here to make a deal with you. Oh yeah? Get the fuck out of here. Simmons reached a hand out to grab hold of the stranger's elbow, but his fingers touched only his thumb. You cannot touch death, although he can touch you. Death? You gotta be shit me. Get out of here before I throw you out. Not before I make my deal. Deal nothing. Get out. The tall man briefly flashed, and for a second Simmons had an image of a scythe and a pale horse. No, my brothers and I are having a contest, and they appear to be gaining the upper hand over the last few decades, and I cannot abide their hubris. It is my turn at the trough. We make a deal, James Simmons, right now. Angela? Who else? No deal. She left me. I am aware. Would she not be grateful you pulled her back from death? At what cost? We pushed the button. It's not a button, and it won't work, at least without the president's codes. I know, and I have them. Your president also made a deal. I will not kill all of humanity just for Angela. They don't allow shitbags or crazy fucks on missile duty. You ought to know that, seeing as how you claim to be some all-knowing figure. Nonetheless, you will make a deal. Hell, I will. Just then, Angela was standing beside death. James! Please, James, it's awful. There's no place, no time, no one. Only consciousness and emptiness. And it wouldn't be all the humans. We'd survive, he promised. And there would be other survivors. It would be hard, but we could do it. Simmons straightened his back and lifted his chin. I won't do it. Not even for you. Then you never loved me. Angela faded in the smoke. Oh, yes, I did. More than the jerk who was driving your car. James Simmons. Here are the codes. Please verify them and let us get on with it. My brothers will not win this decade as they have the last three. I will not. Simmons once again reached out a hand for the tall man's elbow. This time he felt something solid. As he began to tug, he turned toward the door and tried to pull the man out of the airlock. The resistance was impossibly strong, like the man was rooted to the floor. He looked back and saw his hand wrapped around the arm of the chair. He glanced about the room. The door was shut and looked as though it had never been opened. There was no sign of the tall man anywhere. The lights cut out again. Sims let go of the chair and climbed back into his rack, hoping this hallucination, if that's what it was, was now over. Simmons bolted upright. Sure, he heard the security door opening. But the absence of light spilling in from the access tunnel caused him to second-guess his ears. When the air pressure changed, he jumped to his feet and moved as quickly as he could. There was no light other than the red LED on the launch console, but Simmons managed to get all the way to the doorway without bumping into anything. The door really was open, but the lack of light set Simmons' nerves on edge. Hammond? John, is that you? Come on, man. Turn on the lights. It's darker than midnight in here. There was no answer. There were no sounds of breathing or movement or stifled giggles. I think the joke's up. Flick the switch already. Simmons shuffled his way through the doorway and into the passageway, gripping handrails for guidance. He made his way along the platform, connecting the passageway to the elevator shaft, and fished around for the elevator's call button. As he did, his hands brushed against the elevator doors. Or, rather, they should have, but the doors weren't there. Simmons inched forward. Maybe I'm not at the elevator yet. 
but the hollow echo of his footsteps told him differently. Elevator doors were open, but the car itself wasn't here. He wasn't scared of falling since this was the bottom of the elevator shaft, and the mechanisms were not far below. He had strained his ears and stopped perfectly still, listening for the movement of the elevator, or breathing, half expecting Hammond to jump out and scare the shit out of him. But there was dead silence. Simmons reached out across the open shaft and grabbed hold of the emergency ladder built into the wall. It was recessed enough for the elevator wouldn't hit someone climbing up, but it made him nervous. Seventy feet straight up, in the dark, and somewhere out there was Hammond or Anderson or one of the other pranksters just waiting to spring at him. Seventy feet doesn't sound like much, Simmons panted to himself, but damn, it's seven stories. He didn't feel the elevator's presence behind him as he climbed, which meant it was probably at the top floor. The dark pervaded, but he'd been climbing for a long time, and his arms and legs ached. He reached behind him with his left hand and felt the solid back of the elevator. It was in his way, but he knew there was an emergency access hatch in the top of the car. He climbed the last few rungs and shifted his grip to climb on top. The access panel was easy enough to find by feeling around for a handle. Simmons didn't waste much time inside the car. There were magnetic security brakes for just such an eventuality, but so much had gone wrong he didn't want to push his luck. He pried open the door and stepped out into the hallway, just as dark as the rest of the complex, but Simmons knew he was close to the outside. He felt his way along the short hall until his hand brushed a door handle. A blast of warm air slammed the door into his nose. Fuck! Simmons stepped around the door and out into the office. The darkness continued. Now he knew there was something more going on here. Anderson? Sergeant Anderson? He knocked his shin against the table and bumped his elbow against the counter while working his way to the front door. He could see the outline of the windows, which meant there was some light outside. He pushed his way into the open air. It was oppressively hot, and there was an unnatural thickness to the air. Simmons noticed his breathing was shallower at the same time that he started feeling lightheaded. He took the deepest breaths he could and walked around the building to look east, where the sun should have been rising over the horizon. There was some sort of light in that direction, but it wasn't nearly bright enough to be the sun. Then there was a brief break in the blackness, a blinding orange light having found a small patch to poke through. Simmons recognized the source of the darkness. Smoke. There's so much smoke, it's blocking out the sun. But it wasn't the sun. With a tongue of flame, and it appeared to be burning the atmosphere itself. His breath sped up and became even shallower as his head just about floated off his shoulders. What is happening? Simmons dropped to the ground, eyes fixed at the horizon edge of an entire world in flames. The air pressure dropped. Simmons tore aside the curtain separating the bunk from the command consoles, and was bathed in blue light. Strange silhouettes stretched out along the wall playing with the shadows. They looked like long, pointed fingers, and they were getting closer. The intensity of the light faded, but when his eyes finally adjusted, they focused in on a tall gray figure, slender to the extreme, with long arms and a wide triangular head. Its large black eyes blinked a sideways membrane. James Simmons. The large, say it James, alien, creature cocked its head. The voice came from everywhere, it echoed around the room, but that wasn't right. It wasn't actually coming from outside. 
alien's mouth never moved, and the voice sounded like it was coming from inside his own ears. Jane Simmons. Simmons nodded. Follow. The figure turned and walked out through the open security door. But Simmons was no fool. This thing might have found its way in, might have unstuck the jammed tumbler. He didn't have to follow it. He didn't have to thank it for rescuing from the solitary prison under the ground. It's a fucking alien. Besides, he could shut the door and lock it from the inside. Maybe this thing could work the lock. But he wasn't about to leave his post if aliens were landing. He knew the president would need ready, willing launch controllers if the world was really under attack from space invaders. Simmons put his shoulder to the ten-ton door. As heavy as it was, the hinges allowed it to move freely, and it took only a little work to slam it home and turn the lock. The alien's voice was still able to penetrate his mind. James Simmons, open. Follow. Fuck you. He raced back to the consoles and punched a key. The overhead light stayed dark, but the console monitors turned on and scattered green light as cursors blinked and waited for input. The red phone rang. Simmons answered it. This is the president. We are under attack from extraterrestrials, but the Russians believe it to be a ploy by the United States. They have launched missiles, and we are retaliating. Emergency action messages have been relayed. May God have mercy on us all. The defense messaging system receiver beeped an alert. Simmons silenced it and read the EAM. He darted to the locker, thankfully at both his and Hammond's combos. Hammond always was a bit of a pussy. Two-man rule was a great idea in theory, but in practice it meant having to trust your partner to do the right thing when the time came. Simmons punched in the six-digit combinations and pulled out the authentication codes. He sat down at the launch console and checked the EAM three times. The codes were valid. He pushed in his key and turned it to activate the launch switches, counted to ten, and then flicked each of them in turn. No! James! Hammond? James, what? We did right, Hammond. We did right. Hammond flopped to his knees. He was too late. Well, that was a really good reading. Uh, thank you, Cameron, for taking the time to do that. It's a fun little story. There's a lot of tension in it from the very beginning. And that's one of the things that I like the most about it is that it builds uh, on the on the tension and it kind of goes very baroque as it as it continues on. If you want to learn more about Cameron and his writing, you can find him at mangle or at cameronmount.wordpress.com. Again, check out Broadswords and Blasters. Uh, for their back issues. There's 12 of them. I highly recommend it. I highly, highly recommend you checking out any of the Broadswords and Blasters issues. Just a recap. Today we had David Nemeth with news from his website unlawfulacts.net. We had an interview with Pocky James McGillicuddy, the Tri-State Bingo Champion. And we had a story with Broadswords and Blasters editor Cameron Mount. Please check us out online at www.econoclash.com. We are an imprint of Down and Out Books. You can check out Down and Out Books and many of their wonderful authors at downandoutbooks.com. As a little self-promotion, uh, I have a series of quarantine quick reads that are still available. Uh, this one right here is called Just Another Job That Doesn't Pay Very Well. You can find it on Amazon.com. There will be an Audible book coming for this soon, as well as for The Sweetheart Sour and Her Coffin's Colder Than the Mink Glove. Until I see you thrill seekers again, be sure to remember the immortal words of Dr. Mug and the Hitchhiker. 
Don't panic. Don't panic. Make music. We'll strip us. We'll strip to.